Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Isaiah 1 through 12. So as we begin today, many of you may be thinking to yourself, Isaiah, uh-oh. I don't know about you, but when I grew up in the church and in Sunday school and in seminary, Isaiah was always seen as this scary part of the scriptures that, that nobody can understand. And I had teachers try to convince us, no, this is good. If you and if we do our job over these next five weeks of covering Isaiah, by the time we're done, you aren't just going to look at Isaiah and say, oh yeah, I, I, can, I can read it now, I can understand it now, but you're going to love it. You're going to want to spend more time uh, immersing yourself in these words. As we jump in, there is so much to cover, so we would just say, put aside any, any negative uh, preconceptions you may have about Isaiah, and let's roll up our, our proverbial sleeves and dig in and see what we can find. So, let's begin with a phrase that Taylor likes using. The name is? The lesson. So, Isaiah, you'll notice the root here, Yah, from Yahweh or Jehovah. So, Jehovah is salvation, Isha. It's, it's this beautiful, beautiful message of if you want salvation, you better look to God, because that's the only source of this salvation. And isn't it, isn't it fascinating that you look at some elements of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon? For instance, I'll just make a note over here. First Nephi 19.23, you get this funny little uh, statement that Nephi makes, and if you, if you take a moment to un uncover what he actually said, he starts this verse by saying, and I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Moses in, in the books of Moses. Now, if you look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you'd say, hmm, they're not terribly difficult to understand, and if you look at the passages in 1 Nephi that reference Moses' writings, most of them are in Exodus, and those stories aren't difficult. But then he says, but that I might more fully persuade them, his brothers, to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah for I did liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and our learning. You'll notice they weren't making the connection with the writings of Moses, so he says, I'm going to make this more obvious for you. Let's, let's cross-reference over to Isaiah. Now, it's, now you're going to be able to more clearly see the Lord, your Redeemer. I think that's a beautiful principle for us to say, according to Nephi, you have to put on the lenses of the Lord, your Redeemer, when you're reading this book, or you might miss it. You might not be making the connections that need to be made. The other thing that he says in that verse is, I did liken all scripture unto us, that it might be for our profit and our learning. The beautiful principle here is that the scriptures are endlessly meaningful to us. Every time you go back to scriptures, you will see new things. God will inspire you in new ways. There was an ancient philosopher a long time ago who said, no one can ever step into the same river twice because you're not the same person and the river has changed. 
It's the same thing with scriptures. I have read some passages multiple times, and every time I read them, given the kind of situation I'm in in my life, God will help me to understand new things. And that's the value of Isaiah. There's, there's multiple things going on. It's teaching us to trust in Jehovah that he saves, and there's this immediate connection to our lives that there are insights that God wants us to know for right now. And by the way, I don't know of very many other books of Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has personally put a stamp of approval on, and, and not just a stamp of approval, listen to this, he's, he's teaching the Nephites and the Lamanites. The, the section here is 3 Nephi 23. He says, Now behold, I say unto you that ye ought to search these things. Yea, a commandment I give unto you that you search these things diligently, for great are the words of Isaiah. And you'll notice he gives that to you right after having quoted to them Isaiah chapter 54 in, in 35.22. So he doesn't just say, yeah, it's a good idea if you're familiar with Isaiah. He, he says, no, it's a commandment I give to search diligently. So what he didn't say was, I give you a commandment to read Isaiah. The commandment was to search diligently. It's almost like learning a foreign language where you can't just read it a little bit in passing and hope to become more fluent in that language. You have to, you have to study it diligently, and I think that's what he's telling us about Isaiah. You have to immerse yourself. There's some additional insights we also get from 2 Nephi 25 about different keys for understanding Isaiah, understanding the manner of prophesying among the Jews. This is part of the searching. Understand how did the Jews understand prophecy? How did they do it? There's also um, do not do works of darkness or doings of abomination. If you want to understand God's inspired words, it's helpful to be more aligned with God and his commandments. You're going to have his spirit more fully with you to guide you and enlighten your mind. To be filled with the spirit of prophecy, and as we hear from Joseph Smith, that is having a testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. Jehovah saves. There's also be familiar with the regions round about Jerusalem, so being familiar with the history, the culture, the, the language that was being used. And it's also helpful that we live in the last days when many of Isaiah's prophecies are being fulfilled. So on that note about um, studying, it might be valuable to have access to other translations. The King James Version is the official version we use in English in the church. But you might benefit from other translations that might help you make more sense, or potentially even a study Bible. I have a personal favorite called the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible that was lovingly prepared by very faithful scholars who have spent the time researching and searching to understand the regions around Jerusalem and to understand the history and culture surrounding the time of Isaiah and other Bible writers. It gives you some insight about what's going on when these writers are writing. But also, I would include listening to the words of inspired prophets today and what they're teaching us from the words of Isaiah. So we have so many resources. And I would also just say it's okay if when you are done you don't feel like I perfectly understand Isaiah. That's really not the goal. The goal is to become more like God, to feel more of his spirit. But as you take the time to diligently search, you will find your mind, heart, and spirit enlightened you will come to see that you love the words of Isaiah and they make more sense to you. That is a promise that we can guarantee. And ultimately, those, that, that process of growth and development, 
won't just increase your, your cognitive ability, your intellectual capacities, it won't just make you smarter. It will provide you an opportunity to be more informed in how you live your life and in your discipleship and your progression along the covenant path. You will come to know the Lord your Redeemer better in this book than in, than in many other books that you're going to spend time reading. It's, it's amazing what Isaiah was able to do. Um, by the way, part of the reason that makes him so incredible is he is one of the greatest seers of all time. So if you break that word down, it, it's kind of easy to notice that a seer can see. He's a seer, right? Uh, by the way, just silly side note, if, if he's a, somebody who can see, then it would probably be better if he had two eyes, right? Well, turns out he does have two eyes, so it's good. And if you're a good pupil, you understood that joke. <laughs> so, let's jump in. With his, his timeline and his location and his historical cultural setting, Isaiah is living in the kingdom of Judah. He is a court prophet. He's not one of those that's out in the wilderness as some prophets in the past have been referred to as wild men. Like Elijah. Like Elijah. Elijah is not a court prophet. He is really not welcome into the court of Ahab. But Isaiah is right there in the leadership positions in the city of Jerusalem. So he's right there with all the major decisions. And he happens to be there during a very, very critical time period of the history of the house of Israel, especially in the kingdom of Judah. So these are rough estimates. He's going to be doing most of his prophesying and writing between 740 and 701 BC. And for those who, who know uh, the timeline of the Old Testament well, you'll recognize that in 721 BC, that's when Assyria came to town up north and destroyed the northern tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and then came down into the kingdom of Judah and wiped out all of the walled and fenced cities and then besieged the capital city of Jerusalem where Isaiah is living at that time under Hezekiah. And so there's a lot going on and he's making a lot of incredible prophecies and, and providing a great uh, stability for those people during a very tumultuous time. Hmm. I'll bet they could sing, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these our days, and now it's our turn in a tumultuous time to re-echo that sentiment and say, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. Thankfully, also, Isaiah is going to give us lots of prophecies that are going to apply directly to us, and we'll, we'll talk about those as we come to them. So one other piece of information to help give us the context, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, it tells you that he's going to give you the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and then you get four men listed here, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So during four kingly uh, dynasties or reigns, Isaiah happens to be the prophet at that time. You'll notice that the, the description here is, these are things concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So there are a lot of 
researchers out there who, who study the Bible for their whole life career, and there's, there are a lot of opinions about this book. The amazing thing to me is that when you add what we know about Isaiah from the Book of Mormon and from modern Revelation, it, it enhances this capacity to see Isaiah not as just an individual who only is writing his book for the latter days, or just writing his book for the time of Christ, or just writing his book as a great historian, but because he's a Hebrew poet, and because he doesn't speak like a, like a Greek Western-minded uh, person would speak, which is very literal, you just say what you see and just give the facts and leave it at that, a Hebrew poet doesn't do that. A Hebrew poet paints a beautiful picture, this imagery using symbols, and for it to be beautiful Hebrew poetry, it has to be repetitive. So you'll get different structures like chiastic structures, you'll get parallel structures, you'll get bookend structures. There are all these different techniques that they're using with symbols to paint this picture so that you can learn at all kinds of levels symbolically over time, which makes his writing so powerful because of the dualistic nature of it being fulfilled in Isaiah's time. So it absolutely has to do with Jerusalem and Judah at that time, and those people who are receiving this, but then it's almost as if you can pick up those same symbols and those same storytelling things that he's telling, pick it up and then drop it down over a time down the road when Babylon is coming to town, years years after Isaiah is, is passed on, he's going to give you some uh, prophecies about that experience, you can bring it down to the time of Christ, and then overlay it there, you can bring it down to our day, you can take it into the millennium, you can take it into the pre-Isaiah time period. I, I don't know of any prophet in the history of the scriptures who is better at this, being able to take his words and liken them to your day or any of these days easier than Isaiah. It's remarkable. So, so you're going to watch this play out as we go through these chapters. Okay, now, as we get ready to dive into chapter 1, today, as we've said, we're going to be covering chapters 1 through 12, the first of five lessons in Isaiah. It might be helpful if you just saw a really, really quick uh, 30,000-foot overview of the entire book, because what happens is, is you get chapters 1 through 39, and then you get 40 through 66, and there these could be parsed out into smaller divisions as well. But this is the, the highest level look, because what you get here is these are the consequences of breaking the covenant with God. Taylor talks all the time about covenant loyalty or covenant disloyalty. Well, the house of Israel has been very disloyal, and so what you see is a whole series of consequences. It's a lot of punishment. It's a lot of, of God's justice being meted out to them, interspersed, interlaced with hope along the way, a little bit, bit of hope so that it's not just a 39-chapter slog that you're trying to work through. When you get to chapter 40, then it shifts to God's mercy and God re-establishing this covenant of, I will be your God and you will be your people. Ironically, 
it's not the people doing this. It's God remembering his covenant with Abraham saying, you don't deserve this, you haven't earned this, but I'm going to be merciful to you, and you're going to find that when we start chapter 40, the third lesson, the very first word you read in chapter 40 is comfort. It's comfort ye, comfort ye my people, and that's where we'll begin. So for these first two lessons, just recognize it's going to be a little a little heavier as we're watching what happens when people consistently are disobedient to God. So building on what Tyler's saying, we've talked a lot throughout the Old Testament year about the covenantal logic that animates and structures the scriptures. So there's many ways of understanding Isaiah, understanding the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant where God promises his enduring love to Abraham and his children, and the Sinai covenant where God invited Moses and the people out in the wilderness and gave them instructions for how to show covenantal loyalty. So if you understand those two core covenants, we can see what happens when people do not live what God expects or they do. And as Tyler points out, the covenantal logic is if you show infidelity to God again and again and again, there are eventually a whole series of consequences. And we might think, well, God is just mean, angry, capricious, he's full of justice. And in some ways, God is simply a law abider. There is a law of covenant, and he is required by the covenant that when people are not faithful, they have to suffer the consequences. And yet, because of his enduring covenant to Abraham and his posterity that we all get access to, and everybody in the world can have access to, God has chosen to continue to offer mercy. So this viewpoint of the covenantal logic, I think, is very helpful when you read the scriptures, particularly Isaiah, and instead of seeing God as this angry God, we can see God as a covenantal God, that he is acting within covenantal relationships. So if you start in verse 2, notice, remember we, we talked about a Hebrew poet is going to use symbolic repetition. So they'll never just say something and then move on. They'll paint a picture using symbols, and then they'll find a different way, usually, to paint that same picture using different symbols, and then they'll move on. Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Now, notice verse 3. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know my people doth not consider. Are you noticing how it's just repeat, repeat, repeat? So basically all you have to do is understand half of Isaiah, and then you'll be able to unlock the other half that you don't get. Yes, yeah, so you get these, you might map it out as A-A-B-B. So when it says the ox knows his owner, that phrase is repeated in a new way, and the ass is master's crib. Then you have a new thought, but Israel doth not know. And then you have a repetition, in a different way of that same second thought, my people doth not consider. What's also fascinating, if you look back at verse 2, you have, hear, O heaven, it's repeated, give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. And that second phrase doesn't have a repetition immediately. So it's almost like it's this, this echo that's reverberating in the, in the literature that God speaks. And it doesn't have to be repeated again. I have nourished and brought up, and they have rebelled against me. So just these interesting contrasts that Isaiah is not simply speaking truth, 
He's creating beauty out of the words, just like our temples. Technically, you could have an endowment experience in any sacred location, but we build beautiful structures to encapsulate these endowments. And I look at Isaiah doing something similar, that he has literary architecture supporting the beauty of these true doctrines that he's trying to convey. So, you'll notice, let's just take a couple of additional examples in verse 5 and 6. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. Now, let's go to a thought here. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. The condition of Israel breaking this covenant repeatedly, well, it's setting the stage for why these consequences are going to come. Uh, from the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Now, to, to modern-day ears hearing this or eyes reading this, it looks strange. It's, it's, you might say, why would he say it that way? The reality is this writing style is beautiful because of your capacity now to not just see it applying to the people in Judah, the kingdom of Judah in 740 to 701 BC, but you could lift that same phrase up and drop it down into the Sanhedrin, many of the members of the, the ruling class of the Jews at the time of Christ, and see how the same thing could apply, and then you could pick it up and bring it to the modern day, to our time, and see that if we're not careful, individually or collectively, how quickly and easily we fall into this exact same description, as if Isaiah was looking at us, instead of just recording a history for his own day, speaking of Judah and Jerusalem in, in the, the B.C. time period. So, you'll notice as we jump down now, verse 11, he, he starts reasoning with them. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of ram, rams, and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats." Hmm, that's pretty powerful. That's powerful, because they're thinking, I am pleasing my God, because the gods that are surrounding them are requiring th these idol in surrounding cultures. Surrounding cultures, you always sa make sacrifices, and sacrifice is part of the, the worship of Yahweh as well, Jehovah, and so these people are thinking, well, if as long as I just keep making sacrifices, then I can do all these other things in my life, and here's God saying, no, I, th this isn't, it's not doing what you think it's doing. When I read this, it invites me to think, am I just going through the motions of sacred rituals and words in our restored gospel, thinking that that alone will save me, and missing the essence of loving God and loving my neighbor. The sacrament is an invitation to remind us that we want to be aligned to God, that we are going to love him and serve his people everywhere. And it's not enough just to show up to sacrament meeting and say, I'm an active member of the church. What does that really mean? I can imagine God saying, I am full of people saying they're active members of the church, going to church, and then walking out and failing to live the merciful love that I've given them, failing to trust in me, to forgive themselves of things they've done wrong, to forgive others who have hurt them. So that's one of the reasons Isaiah is powerful is that, as Tyler's been explaining, we can apply this across time. The principles reverberate across the centuries. So instead of 
putting the focus or, or staying on what they shouldn't be doing, notice how the shift goes in verse 16 to what you should be doing. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow, and then you get the famous verse 18, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And by the way, when God invites you into a discussion that way, come, let us reason together, you should probably take that invitation and run with it. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, again, if you can get over the, the, the hurdle of trying to interpret Hebrew symbolism and, and this poetic form, the manner of the prophesying among the Jews, as Nephi refers to it, then you'll find that it actually becomes, and maybe you'll have a different experience, but for me it becomes even more powerful than if Isaiah had just said what he was trying to communicate in a Greek uh, literalist sort of a way that, that's going to come in, this, this mindset is going to be introduced by Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and other Greek philosophers 200 years down the road, 300 years down the road from Isaiah, which would be you go to somebody and say, look, if you've sinned, repent, God will forgive you. It's just, that's what I'm trying to say, and I've communicated what I mean. Quite frankly, it's, it's more powerful, it's more motivating to me if you give it a chance to let these symbols distill onto your soul and into your heart to picture the imagery of a white linen tablecloth being stained with blood or with grape juice or something that would turn it scarlet. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, gone, wiped out. That's more power. That imagery is more powerful to me than somebody just saying, repent and you'll be forgiven. Mm -hmm. it, it motivates me more to consider the great price that is paid, and then telling it once isn't enough, so you get the second repeat, though they be red like crimson, crimson they shall be as wool. So that's, that's kind of what we're, we're looking forward to as we get into these chapters now, as we go chapter by chapter through this incredible book. Think about it. Over the next five weeks, as we, if you really engage in this, you're going to be fulfilling a commandment given to us by Jesus Christ himself when he visited the Nephites and Lamanites. It's kind of fun. It's, it's scripture study plus, plus one. It, it's a, it's a, a level up. It's interesting how this begins, this first chapter of Isaiah, it's this invitation for the people to not get so focused on the rituals and forms of religion, but on the essence of serving one another and doing God's work on behalf of others. This phrase back in verse 17, learn to do well, seek judgment, that really means righteousness, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, meaning seek to help people who, for whatever reason, are struggling with circumstances, perhaps not of their own making, that they need to be helped to overcome, and plead for the widow. Economically, in the ancient world, widows and the fatherless were the most economically disadvantaged, and 
It wasn't their choice. They didn't design society that way. They didn't born themselves into those circumstances. And I think about how God is saying, it's fine. It's great that you're doing these sacrifices, but far more important is that you are sacrificing your time and talents to build a better society that is more just, more equal, more valuable. It provides more agents for, agency for people. I think about the words of President Nelson a few years ago, um, dealing on the topic of inequality and racism. He said, and I, I hear almost like he's echoing what God said to Isaiah, we likewise call on government, business, and educational leaders at every level to review processes, laws, and organizational attitudes regarding racism and root them out once and for all. It is past time for every one of us to elevate our conversation about divisive and polarizing rhetoric. Treating others with respect matters. Treating each other as sons and daughters of God matters. These fatherless, these widows, they were children of, they're children of God. And in this society, they were in disadvantaged circumstances. And God was inviting people who had more agency and more opportunity to help share some other agency with others that everybody could be uplifted. The call is the same. Every generation has an opportunity. How are we going to use our time and talents to bless those around us? Do I simply hoard what God has given me and blame everybody else? It was their own fault that they are suffering whatever they are. Or do I listen to what God has revealed and say, everything I've received is a gift and my job is to give it away. My job is to bless others with the blessings God has given me. That's one way I, I, I see these verses. Beautiful. Now let's jump into chapter 2, which uh, shows up in the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi chapter 12. Notice the intro, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now again, we don't want to squeeze Isaiah into a box and force fit him to only fit his time, Judah and Jerusalem, but allow his teachings to then be likened to future days from his time period as well. Notice verse 2, it says, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Today, this verse has huge meaning to us in the latter days because we see the fulfillment being top of the mountains. Well, the name of Utah in the Ute tongue means something along the lines of top of the mountains and that in the last days there will be a temple established and all nations will flow unto it. Don't you love the dualistic capacity of prophecy to be fulfilled repeatedly over time at, at various degrees and various levels? Keep in mind, in Isaiah's days, the last days for that group of people would have been going into Babylonian exile. Around 600 BC. 600 BC. But then the mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains, Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem, where Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah would come back to build the temple and the walls and reestablish it, and all nations would flow unto it from their perspective. What about at the time of Jesus? Well, now you get Herod's temple built on that same location with the dimensions largely doubled in almost every case, this huge temple structure built, and all nations would flow unto it. Jesus would come there. But I think for us, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is our day 
with the reestablishment of the, the kingdom of God on the earth, the church being established in the top of the mountains with the temple being built. And notice it says, verse 3, many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Keeping in mind any time you see mountain of the Lord and the mountain of the Lord's house, it's always a temple allusion, a temple text in the, in the ancient scripture. Why are we going to go there? Because he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. Brothers and sisters, there's a, there's a phenomenon today in our society, in our culture, that is a self-centered um, perspective, an egotistical view of the world of trying to get everybody to see things from my perspective and trying to get my views and my experiences out there for, for people to understand me. You'll notice in verse 3, the reason we go to the temple isn't to teach God about us. It's not to get the prophets to agree with me. It's not to get other people to, to, to get on board with my cause. I go to the temple because I need God to teach me his language of his ways. I need to learn to walk in his paths. I don't go there so that he'll walk in mine. I go there because I want to be changed, but we live in a culture today, in a setting largely, that resists that, that, that wants everybody to adapt to my way of thinking and my way of life rather than going humbly and meekly saying, dear God on high, what could I do to be more like thee and more like thy son and to be more turned outward and blessing and lifting people around me? It's just a, a, a little bit of a, a beautiful shift in, in the way we think when you look at these scriptures really closely. I like how verse 5 ends. It doesn't have this repeated parallelistic pattern of A-A-B-B-C-C. It's just a straight thought. O house of Jacob, come ye. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. What a beautiful summary of this opening statement from Isaiah in chapter 2. It's about coming to God in his temples and learning about the covenant path. So then he, he shifts into this um, indictment against the people in the land. Verse 7, their land is also full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Are you seeing how this could apply in Isaiah's time? How it could apply in the Savior's time? How it can apply in our time if you just change the horses and chariots and the gold and the silver into treasures and, and means of transportation that we have today? Verse 8, their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. He's, he's saying, look, they made it and now they worship it. They, they ruled over it and now they set it up to rule over them. And you can see a million ways that that could apply to the various quote-unquote idols that we have in our world today. Humans should not be worshiping their own creations. We are God's creation. We are in his image. And we should be then looking at how are we serving those around us which are living, breathing daughters and sons of God versus the physical things that we all create and make use of let's just focus on serving those around us. So you'll notice he goes into a long section here, starting in verse uh, 11, 
10 and 11, the lofty looks of men shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And then it's not enough just to say that, he's going to paint multiple pictures. This must have been a really big deal to Isaiah to communicate this idea that that which is high, that which is lofty, that which is puffed up will be made low. And so he uses it with everything from cedars of Lebanon to oaks of Bashan to the high mountains to the hills to the high towers, the fenced walls, the ships, the pleasant pastures, all these things that, that you would look at and say, wow, from an earthly perspective, that's amazing. Well, those are the very things that are going to be bowed down and brought low. And I think his point here is it's not about the towers and the trees and the pastures. Those are just place-holding symbols for people and for our approach to life. If we go through life building ourselves up and feeling haughty and proud and puffed up in our own greatness that we think we've made, well, the promise is sure that we will be bowed down and made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. This, this reminds me of the Tower of Babel story, Genesis 11. The people gather together, a bunch of mass of unnamed people saying, let us make our name great, so let's build a tower. Chapter 12 of Genesis, God comes to Abraham and says, I will make your name great. That's the difference. Let's all just stop trying to make our names great. Let's let God do his work. Let us be instruments in his hands. It's incredible the enormous good that's been done in the world with inventions and buildings and transportation. I don't think God has a problem with that per se. It becomes a problem, though, when it distracts us from the things that matter, when we start worshiping those things instead of God. God has given the good things of the earth to relieve people, to enhance agency, not to conscribe or to diminish agency. We shouldn't be hoarding agency because of resources. We should find a way to magnify everyone's agency. So, watch the end of this, this little story, how Isaiah brings it to a culmination of what will happen, how will, how will the lofty be made low? Look at verse 20. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made, each one for himself to worship. So you're going to take these things that, that used to, to receive so much of your time, talent, energy, money, your, your thoughts, your devotion, you're going to take those very things that you've invested so much worship into, and what are you going to do? You're going to cast them to the moles and to the bats. Hmm. Now that's fascinating. You're going to throw those very things that you used to be worshiping to the moles and the bats. Moles, as you know, live largely underground, bats live largely in caves and then fly out in the air. Now, why would Isaiah have used those two animals? He could have used any symbol, but he's painting a picture for us, and with Greek uh, ideologies that we've been raised with, most of us, if you just put that aside for a minute and put on those Hebrew symbolic lenses and look at that and say, wow, Isaiah picked the two most largely known animals that share a common trait. They're both blind. They can't distinguish an idol of gold from a, from a polished rock of granite or even maybe a, a, a hard stick. They can't tell the difference. An idol of gold 
has zero value to a mole or a bat. And it's this beautiful Hebrew symbolic poetry way of saying, can you not wait until that day to cast aside your idols and recognize the God, the living God, who holds worlds without number in his hands, who created you in his image? Can you, can you just speed that process up and recognize the worthlessness in the end of these idols that, that have taken so much of our devotion and energy and effort. So he closes that chapter with verse 22, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? You'll notice, you'll notice the propensity of prophets when they're in their prophetic seership role, they're not afraid to give commands. They're not afraid to speak in the imperative form, the, this command form, and it's beautiful. What you don't want is a prophet who says, well, you know, here's a truth, but you do whatever you want with it. God's prophets are called and commissioned to speak for the Lord, and the, and the Lord gives commands. And so in this case, it's cease ye from men. Stop, stop putting your trust in men and in the flesh and in these idols. Put it in God. Consider the law of the harvest. You, you reap what you sow. Nobody goes out to their garden and plants tomato seeds and expects to come back in the fall and, and harvest corn. We reap what we sow, and the whole rest of this chapter shows that principle over and over. Verse 10, say you to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. I can't go through life planting bad seeds and then expect that magically at the end of life, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and it shall be well with us. I'll be able to then harvest all the fruits of non-fruitful living. Thank heaven for the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ, who the master gardener can go back and correct all of those bad seeds that I planted as I'm striving so to do, as I'm, I'm trying to, to be more faithful so that then he can make right that which I've made wrong. And you get all of this, this section about the daughters of Zion. You'll notice in Scripture symbolism, Christ is usually symbolized as the bridegroom, Israel, the church, us, usually symbolized as the bride, and you see all of the various ways that, that we take on the clothing and the jewelry and the adornments of the world rather than choosing to be endowed in or to put on Christ, to put on the robe of righteousness that he offers us um, through various means within the gospel. What happens here is uh, much of Isaiah 1 through 39 deals with consequences of broken covenants, and yet every now and then you have moments of, of light and hope. And this is one of those chapters where God says, even though a lot of bad things are going to happen, eventually I will invite you back in, I'll give you another chance. And he talks about the healing and the beauty that returns for people who choose to enter back into the covenant with God. Which I think, Taylor, is a really important point for us to, to constantly remind ourselves of is the fact that the scattering was not an event, it was a process. Well, that means the gathering isn't going to be an event, it's going to be a long process, and the gathering of Israel is this worldwide effort that is this long unfolding process. Well, the same could be said about you as an individual. 
as you're being gathered more and more to Christ, it's this line upon line, here a little, there a little, every day trying, striving a little little more to be more like the Savior. Look at verse 5. The Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. It's that idea of you're striving, you're doing the best you can, no, it's not perfect, nobody's got this completely figured out, Nobody, nobody's found the fast track to heaven, so to speak, we're all working, but don't you love the fact that by day he provides a cloud of cover to shade us from the heat, and by night he gives us a flame to warm us, to guide us, help us to see as we move forward. I love that. That's empowering to me to realize, oh, I don't have to accomplish everything in my patriarchal blessing today or this week or this year or even this decade. I just need to keep moving forward. I've got a few few things that I can do today to move forward under the cover of heaven's direction, giving me light and protection and guidance and direction. I can do that if I put my trust in Christ rather than my trust in me to, to try to save myself today. Amen. That We should connect this to the story of the Israelites being saved from Egyptian bondage. The covenantal logic of that was God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to deliver the people, to give them access to the covenant, and this was his mighty acts, his wondrous deeds, his miracles to pr- prove to them that he was a trustworthy God, and that we have it here shows you can hope and trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that that eternal covenant of offering posterity and prosperity in God's presence, will that, that covenant is always accessible. And we have that symbol here of the pillar of fire by night and the, the cloud by day. It's just to remind us we can trust God. It's very powerful. That's where the hope comes from. Absolutely. Now, chapter 5 shifts, and he's, once again, Hebrew poetry, he's going to paint a picture for us about the scattering of Israel and about the, the Lord sending them out into the, to the various nations, but he uses it through a song. He, he tells you, now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Now he shifts into singing mode, so to speak, and it's a song about a vineyard, that the Lord has put everything he could. He planted his choicest vine, he built a tower, he put a, a wine press in it. It's He provided everything possible for this vineyard to become fruitful, productive, and to, to prosper. To be a profitable servant. And look at verse, oh, and by the way, we're not talking about a vineyard. We're talking about you. We're talking about me. We're, we're the thing that God has built and created and provided for. This is about us and about us fulfilling our roles of being fruitful through him. Look at verse 4. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. I gave it everything it needed and it didn't turn all of that light and that nutrient and that water and all those resources into sweet grapes. It brought forth sour grapes. 
the, the works were not works of righteousness. So he says, verse 5, now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And at that point, the vineyard can't say, hey, what are you doing? I deserve better than this, because the vineyard knows, uh, actually, <laughs> yeah, I brought this upon myself. Um, and verse 7 says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. So he, he's making it very obvious. He's putting it on a silver platter saying, let me help you make the jump here that we're not just talking about a vineyard in this song. We're talking about you. You're the pleasant plant. And he says, he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Now, some really powerful wordplay going on in the underlying Hebrew. I want you to hear just these words. The word for judgment in, in Hebrew is mishpat, but instead you have this word mishpah, blood. So God is saying, I wanted righteousness, but instead we got people being killed and taken advantage of. I wanted tzedakah, righteousness, but instead he gets tesakah, which is a cry of distress. Now somebody's translated into English in a way that might play upon um, alliteration and assonance in our language. It'd be like saying, he sought equity, but found iniquity, a righteous nation, but instead lamentation. So this sad story that God had given them everything, and they chose to use it to oppress one another, to hurt one another, instead of acting as God would, to share and uplift. I also love how the Song of the Vineyard has some amazing literary echoes found in Jacob chapter 5. So if you want to take the longest chapter of the Book of Mormon and compare it with these verses in Isaiah, that would be an incredible study session where you can look at how does the Lord symbolically work with his people, spend so much time giving them resources, and the pain he experiences when he sees that people have chosen to corrupt or to break the good that he's brought. And by the way, verse 20 kind of describes what was going on in Isaiah's time. It describes what's going on a hundred years after that in Lehi and Nephi's time in Jerusalem. It's going to describe what's what Jesus is facing with some of the leaders of the, the people in his day, and I think you'll be able to liken it to our day as well. Verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And then he takes it one step further. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Uh, this is a prophet saying, no, it's, he, he's not saying, it, it's a bad idea to that, he's saying, woe unto them. This is a, this is a cursing unto them. This is a, not a position anybody wants to be in. In my experiences, I have interacted with people who have acquired great wisdom and knowledge. Many of them are very humble people. The reason is they started at a smaller level of wisdom and knowledge, but as they studied and gained life experience and listened to the Lord and acted on his word, they grew in their knowledge. Now, what you notice, the circumference of this circle is much smaller than this circumference. It turns out that 
as you gain knowledge and wisdom, the circumference of your ignorance, the surface area of the ignorance that you're now touching has actually expanded. So there's this irony that as you gain wisdom and knowledge from learning and studying the things of the world and from God, you also bump up against more ignorance, which is back to, I should never take myself so seriously that I have all the answers. I have not yet received all truth to be circumscribed in one great whole. There's still yet more for God to reveal. So I hear this phrase and I ask myself, how am I doing at not uh, being careful at not calling good evil and evil good? Am I getting too wise in my own eyes or am I willing to be humble that as I gain knowledge, it actually means I have greater access to ignorance. It's this really interesting paradox. Again, the people that I know who have great, great knowledge, many of them are some of the most humble people I know. And sometimes I have seen people, and I have done it too, that I have enormous pride in my ignorance, or I have enormous um, satisfaction in what I don't know, or I take, um, I feel very strong about a limited view on the world. And I've had many experiences where I've had to realize that my limited view had to be upgraded and updated with new light and truth. It's a hard process. That's a powerful concept, Taylor, this idea of what I know being on the inside, what I don't know being on the outside. I think we've all experienced that, of getting the answer to a question, something that we didn't know, which then extends our knowledge base out here. Well, as he's saying, now that just brings on even more questions, which isn't a bad thing. Questions are wonderful because it's, it causes us to inquire and to search diligently and to keep asking. So I love that, especially in the context of Isaiah, as we're embarking on five weeks of studying the, these words of Isaiah. Don't be afraid of what you don't know. Let's be humble about what we do know and diligent about what we don't know and seeking those answers. It's a powerful concept. So now let's watch what happens as God gives us a, an extended promise of what he's going to do. Verse 26, and he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. Isn't it amazing to consider the prophet Brigham Young who took that small group of men with him up onto the top of Ensign Peak? just north of the Salt Lake Valley, overlooking that, that new settlement that they were starting to, to develop. And as I believe it was Heber C. Kimball waved that large bandana on the end of a stick as a literal fulfillment of verse 26, creating this ensign to the nations, this, this banner, this flag, this clarion call to come gather in this effort. It's beautiful as, as that work was started there which now brings us to chapter 6. Which is interesting that most of the prophetic writers in the Old Testament, you get their call in the first chapter of their book, and here in Isaiah, it shows up in chapter 6. And it's so powerful what happens individually for Isaiah here as he experiences the purging fire of God's love in the temple. And I look at Isaiah as a representation of all of us, that God wants to give to all of us what Isaiah experienced, which is the purging atonement. Plus, there's many other really cool things in this. <laughs> there there call. are some amazing things. You'll notice in the Hebrew, the, the text here shifts in chapters one through five from being in this Hebrew poetic form to then chapter six shifts into prose. 
we're no longer doing the symbolic repetition and the, the manner of the prophesying among the Jews. Now, he's just telling his own story. This is what happened to me when I went to the temple. Notice it's in the temple where he saw God in this sacred space. It was many, many years ago, sitting in an institute class up at Utah State University with uh, John Fowles as my teacher, and he introduced this concept of throne theophanies in Scripture, and I'd never heard that word before, but it, I, I found it fascinating. A throne theophany, which is a view of God sitting on his throne. And in this, in this introduction, Brother Fowles shared with us these different elements that show up in various prophetic encounters with God in the Bible. That would be uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, some from, from Daniel, Jeremiah, then you get John the Revelator, these different elements, and if you look at all of them and kind of piece together, what are some th common threads or some elements that seem to show up in repeated stories of people getting their divine commission, including Enoch, Moses? Then some scholars have broken this down to where they usually start with, number one, a historical prologue. They usually give you the setting, the place, the timing, who's in charge, and then they go to them seeking some sort of direction or some sort of comfort from the Lord, then you get some divine confrontation in their initial reaction, and then you get the theophany, and with the theophany it's not just so that they see God existing and say, okay, well, as C.S. Lewis said, as if the good Lord had nothing better to do than just exist, he always gives a commission, he always gives a calling to the prophet, he gives something for them to do, and it often involves a book, and it's usually a book of woe, which is interesting, and then there's usually a, a prophetic protest where, oh, I, I can't, I'm not good enough, I can't fulfill this, then you get the Lord's reassurance, and then you get the conclusion of the story. So I thought it was fascinating when Brother Fowles had presented this pattern of throne theophanies in the Bible, when he then turned his attention to say, isn't it fascinating how the young prophet Joseph Smith at age 14 follows the exact same pattern? He starts his story with a historical prologue. Early in the spring of 1820, he tells you what's going on, this religious fervor, he had some questions, he goes to the Lord seeking guidance, there's a, a confrontation, some opposition from the devil, he gets help, then he sees the Lord, he gets his divine commission, there's probably a lot of self-doubt and reassurance, and his prophetic call involves the book eventually being given to him, the Book of Mormon. Oh, and how does he start that book? With a prophet named Lehi, who experiences a throne theophany very similar to what the biblical prophets experienced in their throne theophanies, and for fun you could go and read 1 Nephi chapter 1 and see how clearly Lehi's prophetic call maps onto some of these experiences of these, these biblical prophets. It's just beautiful to me how the Lord uses these same patterns, both in the old world and the new, both in the ancient world and in the modern, the, these capacities to carry forth his work according to his will. So let's begin with his historical prologue. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. You'll notice Isaiah's throne theophany skips a whole bunch of those initial phases that you get in some of the others in, in the Bible. Um, and his train filled the temple. 
So Isaiah's in the temple and he sees this, this glorious vision and he sees seraphim and verse... And by the way, the word seraph in Hebrew means burning or shining. So their names are the lesson. They have these burning, shining, not only they're burning and shining, but they bring burning and shining objects with them. Powerful. Verse 3 tells you that one cried unto another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There are many ways to add emphasis to an idea or to a concept in the ancient world. One of those ways is to repeat it, repeat a word or repeat a concept twice, to make it feel more superlative or the extreme um, case of that example, you then repeat it three times. You'll notice this isn't very good English to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We would say the Lord of hosts is the holiest. That's how we would make it superlative or the most holy God. But you'll notice in the Hebrew, one of the ways they can do that is to repeat it three times. So you're going to see multiple elements in your scriptures, especially in the ancient scriptures, repeated three times. Pay attention to things that get repeated three times and see that as a superlative or, or the most of whatever it is that's, that's happening in those situations. So here's the problem. Isaiah's in this incredible experience. Now his, his reaction to that is, I'm not fit to be here. I, one, of these, one of these beings is not like the others. I don't belong. And it's, it's this uncomfortable position for him until, as Taylor had said, one of the seraphs uh, takes care of that situation. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Have you ever been burned before? Was it a pleasant experience? Would you go repeat it? When we think about the atonement, we often talk about in terms of sweetness and beauty. If you think about uh, Nephi's vision of the tree of life, he talks about the, the joy of, of the atonement. This one is a little different. It's this burning, and yet, if you think about the word fire and pure, those two words come from the same root word. For us to be purified, we have to have the dross burned out, everything that's worthless consumed. And it can be painful. In my life, when God has been purging me, I often think to myself, Lord, isn't there a simpler way? Can't I just have a nice process of having all the, bru all the bumps of my life rubbed out? But it's like this experience we see with Isaiah, that his mouth is purified with fire, that he can speak the words of purity that come directly from God. Which, by the way, when we raise our hand to sustain prophets, seers, and revelators, I hope, I hope we're getting this message, that those prophets, seers, and revelators have been divinely commissioned for specific purposes, and they're not on their own errand. They're, they're doing the best they can to represent the Lord and speak for him. Look at verse 9. He said, Go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see indeed, but per perceive not. It's this idea of they're choosing not to hearken, they're choosing not to see, but that experience in the temple for Isaiah was not just for Isaiah. It was to have Isaiah become an instrument in the hands of the Lord to go out and do, hit, do the work of the Lord, not do the work of Isaiah. So when we raise our hand to sustain leaders, I hope we'll, 
will truly sustain, not just with our hand, but with our minds and our hearts and our actions. And if there's something that you find troubling that the prophets share, then don't blame the prophets. Let's take those concerns in our prayers and in our supplications to the Lord and ask him in this idea of that which we don't know, let's ask him for guidance and direction to be given, further light and knowledge for the church and for ourselves. Isn't it fascinating that when President Nelson was put in as a prophet, the first talk, the first major talk he gave in general conference in April of 2018 was called Revelation for the Church, Revelation for Our Lives. Let's let's take that to the Lord and plead for more revelation to be given as need be, or for us to understand the revelation that has already been given, rather than us trying to correct God's prophets because they're not saying things the way we want them said or emphasizing the things we want emphasized. As we open up chapter 7, you're going to see a new conflict arise for Jerusalem and for the kingdom of Judah here to the south, because keep in mind, at this time you have the kingdom of Israel to the north, and then you have the kingdom of Syria north of them, and Assyria is over here in this Mesopotamian region, the, the, the Fertile Crescent. Syria is often referred to as Damascus. Israel is often referred to as Ephraim. So what we get here is the Syro-Ephraimite uh, war against Judah down in Jerusalem. So these two countries to the north combine together, their two kings combine, and say, let's go wipe out the kingdom of Judah. And the reason is, Assyria at this time now has very powerful kings who are trying to invade and take over so they can get access to all these resources. These two kingdoms feel like we don't want foreign powers taxing us and ruling us, so if the three of us combine, we can protect ourselves against Assyria, and the kings in Jerusalem think it's foolhardy and decide not to join the coalition. So Syria and Israel say, well, we really need the resources of Judah, let's take them on, knock the king out, put a puppet king in that will then join with us to protect ourselves against Assyria. And what we'll see here in the, in the history is that Judah doesn't join with them, uh, the Syria-Ephraimite war turns in the favor of Judah, and eventually Syria and Israel get conquered by Assyria, and Judah is preserved. So you'll notice the way that this prophecy of the deliverance of Judah from Israel and Syria, God could have just made it really simple for King Ahaz through Isaiah, and he could have said, oh, don't worry about those two, and given them a timeline of when things were going to happen, but you'll notice he used this, this beautiful symbol to show the deliverance. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And butter and honey shall he eat, and he shall not, or that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. So a woman's going to conceive, a virgin's going to conceive, or a, a maiden is going to conceive and bear a son, and before that child is able to know good from evil, these two kings are going to be deposed. They're, they're going to be done. And here's the cool thing. That absolutely applies 
in Isaiah's day because Isaiah is going to tell you he goes into his wife and a, a son is going to be conceived and born, and the neatest part about this, this symbolic telling of this story is how you can pull it off of Isaiah's time and put it 700 years down the road with Mary conceiving and bearing a son, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. So something that helps a group of people who are really concerned about pending death and war and destruction, they're delivered from that with this promise through the birth of a child. Well, that child, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, as he's called, and all of the events of 700 and, uh, 740 to 720 BC, all of these events that have been culminating, those are just symbols, placeholders for the ultimate deliverance from pending death and despair and destruction and slavery and servitude, which comes through the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ and his coming into the world, the ultimate God with us. So you look at chapter 8, and the Lord tells him to take a scroll and write concerning Mahershalal Hashbaz, and so he went into unto the prophetess, she conceived, bare a son, they named him this name which means destruction is imminent. Some of you maybe have some children or nephews that maybe you think should have been named Mahershalal Hashbaz because every time they show up, destruction is imminent in your home, perhaps, or in your nursery class or your primary class. Notice how he words this, verse 4, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away from before the king of Assyria. Uh, our, our good friend, uh, my colleague Byron Merrill, once shared this insight that usually it doesn't matter what language it is, usually the, some of the very first words that a young child in that language learns to say or to speak are mommy, daddy, mama, papa, mom, dad, mother, father. Those words in, in all their, the different languages are usually some of the very first words out of a child's mouth. And what he's saying here is, before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father, my mother, then you'll know that the riches of these two countries are going to be spoiled by Assyria. It's a way to say, look, this prophecy has a clock ticking on it. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen before this young child is old enough to be able to say that. And depending on the kid, that could be shortly after they turn one all the way up until they turn two, somewhere in that range. So it kind of gives them a uh, a calming, it's okay, it's not going to be long now, we don't have to worry about this anymore. So in the rest of chapter 8, you get the, the beginnings of this Assyrian conquest as this army comes into the region and starts wiping them out, which, by the way, there's a location up north, here's Nazareth and here's Capernaum where Jesus relocates to at the beginning of his ministry, which now leads us into chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, which if you read it initially and you just read the black words on the white page, you're probably going to finish chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 and look up and say, so what? And one of the things Nephi said about Isaiah's prophecies is if you just know the geography, if you know the regions roundabout and the manner of prophesying, then you're going to understand these words. 
yeah, let's read this and then explain the geography and how it applies to Isaiah's day as well as to the time period of Jesus. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. So the way of the sea was an international road that came down through Syria, through the Golan Heights, down past Capernaum, down to this area, past Megiddo, which is later called Armageddon, and onto the sea. And any invading army would come down through here. And this is the shadow of death. Like, if an army was trying to make its way to Jerusalem, they had to conquer all these areas first, which are part of the tribal lands of Naphtali and Zebulon. So they're being vexed. There's this dimness, there's this darkness, because the Assyrian king is coming in and causing havoc. And so the people are waiting for relief to be overcome the king of Assyria and his hordes. And then what happens hundreds of years later? Jesus grows up in this area. He is the light of the world. He emerges from this area that had seen so much death and destruction over the years. Remember, Megiddo is right here. It's a city that was destroyed dozens of times, so much so that it became proverbial called Armageddon because that's where destruction happened. It's literally across the valley from where Nazareth is, where Jesus grew up, and not far from Capernaum. So these verses have very important significance for the time of Isaiah, Jesus' day, and even symbolically, we understand that Armageddon represents, in the last days, God will once again bring forth his light to overthrow the forces of darkness that are impinging upon his people. Beautiful concept that in, in Jesus' day, him growing up in the land of Zebulun, the tribal region of Zebulun, and then relocating over to the tribal region for Naphtali being included here, you'll notice in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, this is coming from Matthew, who who's, seems to be largely writing to, to Jewish men and trying to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, and he references this Isaiah passage and says, see, Jesus moved from Nazareth down to Capernaum at the beginning of his ministry, and that's a fulfillment of this Isaiah prophecy. Upon them hath the light shined, this, this God with us from before. Well, he's the one who shines down on the people who are in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, you don't have to live in Israel to have this story likened to you, the way Matthew likened it to Christ ultimately in his day, because some of you are currently going through a valley of the shadow of death. And isn't it amazing if you'll look up to seek the light, to see the light shining on you, and that light being Jesus Christ, um, his promise is sure that he's there. Look at what happens a few verses later, verse 6, for unto us, a child is born, unto us a son is given. Are you seeing the repetition here? And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's one person that ultimately fulfills this, this Isaiah prophecy, and it wasn't somebody living in 740 to 701, and it's not anybody living today or in the millennium on the earth. It it's somebody who was born 
uh, 700 years after Isaiah, and it's upon him that the government would be placed on his shoulder. And by the way, notice the first few lines, for unto us a child is born. That child wasn't just born to Mary. That child wasn't just adopted by Joseph. He was born to us. He was the greatest gift ever given to the earth in the history of eternity, um, and it's God's gift of love, of giving his own son to then take the throne of David, verse 7. So at the end of chapter 9 and leading into chapter 10, you get this phrase that gets repeated a, a handful of times where he says that the hand of the Lord is stretched out still, and then there's more destruction than it says his hand is stretched out still. There are a lot of debates as to whether that means that the Lord is, in the midst of all of these strugglings, the Lord is still loving, kindly, there helping, and others would say on the opposite side of that debate, no, his hand represents this punishment that we were talking about in chapter 1 through 39 is he's punished them, and the punishment isn't just to inflict pain, the punishment is in intended to cause pain that would make them change their behavior, change their attitudes and their direction of life, but they don't change, so his hand is stretched out still. He punishes them again, and they still don't change. His hand is stretched out still. I'm, I don't know which one, which camp or somewhere in the middle that you want to fall. The point is that in our own life, when, when God corrects us, I hope we can feel the, the hope and the loving, tender arms of mercy enfolding us in the midst, even in the midst of correction, but also let any pain that comes cause us to turn heavenward and outward rather than inward and, and into a, a state of pity or, or self-loathing even in some cases, but that we turn towards our solution, which now leads us into chapter 10 where you're introduced to this whole sequence with the Assyrian conquest, because by this time Assyria has knocked, knocked out these two northern kingdoms, Israel and Syria, and now they've made their way into the kingdom of Judah, and we're in trouble because Jerusalem, where Isaiah lives, 721 BC, they're being uh, besieged as Sennacherib now brings that full Assyrian army, and these Assyrians, they are, they are brutal. Atrocious. They're terribly um, uh, violent in how they wage their wars. And you have this list of all these towns and cities later in the chapter that were, were conquered. And we don't want to paint the blood and carnage. I feel like Mormon not wanting to explain just how terrible the Assyrians were. Uh, of all the years of warfare across human history, uh, Assyrians would be one time period I would not want to be living in. So you'll notice as King Sennacherib, this, this leader of the Assyrians, as he gets puffed up and haughty and prideful in all these things that he's done, notice it says, uh, verse 13, here's what he's saying, Behold, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. 
Isaiah pauses. You, you can picture this, this little prophetic pause here of him considering Sennacherib's boasting, and then Isaiah goes into prophetic mode, verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify himself against him that shaketh it, as if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift up itself, as if it were no wood? Brothers and sisters, as we look at our own lives today, is there anything that you've accomplished? Is there anything you've done? Is there anything you've learned that you could honestly say, I did that, and God didn't help me with that. I did that. That was my own doing. I would hope that the answer to that question is no. I would hope that the answer is a very meek and sincere response of, I have done nothing worth doing, I have learned nothing worth learning, independent of God. All that I am, all that I have, everything I own, everything I've accomplished has been done through the means of God helping me and providing ways for me to accomplish those things as he uses you in his hands as an instrument to do various things. Let's not be that chisel or that paintbrush or that tool, that hammer that says, look what I just built, without acknowledging the fact that it was the Lord God of the universe who was holding us in his hands the whole time, shaping us and then using us to do those, those incredible works, whatever they may be. So you'll notice that the, the Lord then makes a prophecy against Sennacherib that he will be brought low, and he tells the people, look at verse 24, therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And then he prophesies his death. Now if you look over at chapter 11, you get this incredible um, description of this house. It's almost like this tree, the house of Israel being a tree that has been growing and growing and growing, and then God comes and cuts it down, first by the Assyrians, later on by the Babylonians, cuts it down, leaving the, leaving the house of Israel saying, oh, I put all of this work into growing this tree and now it's, now it's wasted, it's destroyed, and it becomes burned, and there's no hope. Well, chapter 11, keep in mind, these first 39 chapters, it's a lot of consequences, but there's this little glimmer of hope in chapter 11, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Keep in mind, Jesse is the father of David, Jesus is going to be a descendant of King David, so a little rod comes forth and a branch shall grow out of the roots. There's hope growing out of these roots, out of this tree that's been cut down, this lofty uh, growth that has been laid low and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You get some beautiful connections with chapter 11 um, over in 2 Nephi chapter 21, it gets repeated obviously, but then you can cross-reference it over to Doctrine and Covenants section 113. Section 113 is where Joseph Smith gets this opportunity to have a, a Q&A, a question and answer period with the Lord, and he asks a lot of questions about 
who's who in chapter 11 of Isaiah. This is a, this is a significant chapter for Joseph, and so it's going to come up uh, in, in a variety of places for him. Now notice one of these promises that will come through Christ in the latter days. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. This house that's divided, these two kingdoms that have been at war and have, have hated each other and been adversaries, it won't always be that way. The Lord will unify and bring them together in the last days. The gathering of the house of Israel is not just the gathering of a portion of the tribes, it's a gathering of all of the children of Israel, and those who aren't a part of that family be adopted into those tribes. It's going to be one family in the end. And then we get to the, to the closing chapter for, for today's episode in chapter 12, which, by the way, this is just, this is my own little opinion of all of the Isaiah chapters, all 66 of them, this is by far one of the shortest and, in my opinion, one of the easiest to understand. There's, you can read this, these six verses slowly and you can see how it could absolutely be pointing us to the millennial day, but you could see certain elements of the prophecy being fulfilled at different phases of the earth's history, but hopefully you can see it in your own day as a story of redemption and forgiveness and mercy and grace, that when you fill of God's goodness, you can read these six, six verses and see how phrases like, in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. I, I don't know of a better way to describe forgiveness and repentance than, than those words right there. Verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. This is the name Isaiah. You translate this back into Hebrew, Jehovah is salvation. So he's preaching, Isaiah is preaching the meaning of his name. There's so much hope in the midst of all this chaos that has gone on. There's so much hope that if you focus on what Isaiah means, Jehovah is salvation, there's always hope. And like you, I take so much solace from this chapter after so much chaos of war that we've been seeing, there is hope in Jehovah. So as we conclude, just let these words just do more than bounce off your eardrum. Hopefully they, they sink deeper into your mind and into your heart. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted, sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, thou inhabitant of Zion for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. So as we end this, this lesson from Isaiah chapter 1 through 12, just know that it's our testimony that the Lord God of Israel, Jehovah, is salvation, not just for them back then, but for us and for you today. Just know that he is in our midst today. His promise is, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.